to glimpse in that in that moment how small I was and how small my own minute comprehension, partial comprehension of someone else's narrative um, was just a joyful moment of being put in my place. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And... What that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. Um, And we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. So a while ago, I got a call from a friend of mine who's a doctor in an emergency department of a hospital. He works in the ER, and he called me because he had had this patient come in with all the signs of appendicitis, really intense abdominal pain, et cetera, et cetera. And he had asked the man what quality of pain uh, it felt like. Was it a burning pain, a stabbing pain, a throbbing pain, that kind of thing? Because it turns out that appendicitis is almost always described as a stabbing pain. That's like one of the known clinical signs of appendicitis, apparently, according to my friend. And the man insisted that it was not a stabbing pain that he was feeling. But just in case, my friend sent him for scans. The man came back and it turns out that the scans showed he did in fact have really an acute appendicitis. And my friend, I guess, remarked on this about how it was so odd that the man hadn't, had really refused the descriptor of stabbing in relation to his pain. And the man kind of blinked and looked at my friend and said, well, I've been stabbed. This doesn't feel anything like that felt, which really took my friend aback. Um, And then when my friend told me this really took me aback because it really struck me as an example of the way that we assume that our words are understood in the way that we mean them. And that is true in writing. That is true in our interactions with people we love. That is true at work. And that is definitely true in the context of medicine in the hospital, where actually the stakes of communication between a patient who is in a state of intense vulnerability and the doctor, the stakes of that communication is really high. Um, And I haven't thought about that story in a long time, except that for this week's podcast, I called up um, Laura Colby, who is both a poet and a physician. She's an internist at New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan, where she's spent most of the last year as a physician on the COVID wards. And also, in addition to that, she is a beautiful poet and essayist. And the reason why I wanted to talk to her for this week is because she started publishing kind of at the height of the COVID surge, these really beautiful essays about what it was like to try to treat patients, to be a doctor in this experience, trying to treat the enormous numbers of patients that were coming through, how the ethical and human concerns of her job were evolving under pandemic conditions. And When we got on the phone to talk, what she wanted to talk about was an instance 
where communication failed between herself and a patient that she really liked in such a way that it really opened a conversation about the limits of language and the stakes of language, particularly when there's a discrepancy in a power dynamic, which feels really apropos to a lot of the conversations we're having right now, not just about medicine and how we care for each other in medical contexts, but also about politics and how we care for each other in individual relationships um, and as a society. And so I'm really excited to get to air this conversation between myself and Laura Colby. It it felt like um, just, a, I don't know how else to describe this, but you know, being on a space shuttle or being at sea or something, I've never really been in a space in the hospital that felt so particularly um, cordoned um, from the usual um, the usual power currents in the hospital, um, and it really felt like a space in which we were learning together um, on an on a new shore um, and. It was incredibly exciting to to discover and and create with other people just a new way of practicing medicine. What what was the new? What how is it different? The new way that you guys invented just a um, radically equitably empowered space, which I don't think is necessarily. It's certainly not the default mode of of medical practice. Um, and it's perhaps one of the very few silver linings of the pandemic is that I didn't know about COVID until, you know, February or so. And I didn't really know the things I knew about it, um, in April until it was April. And then there were more things that I learned in May when it was May, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, so I was a learner. I was a student, even as I was the teacher and practitioner. I was all of those things at once. And the same was true for every single other person, for every single patient, for every single um, custodian in the building, for every single speech pathologist in the building. All of us were learning and practicing in in parallel together. Um, And so that meant that it was easier to see than ever that the emperor had no clothes, that I, the doctor, was just a person, you know, just <laughs> a, a woman trying to do my job well, trying to keep people safe and help them feel um, respected and heard. Um, but, but a very, very fallible person um, with all the glitches that each person carries. Um, and... I think because that was made ever more apparent by, you know, my own lack of expertise in COVID or my my expertise growing at the same rate as every other human in that hospital, including the patients, um, it became more clear that that is in some sense always true and we just choose to forget it or we choose to choreograph the scene a different way where um, people endow the doctor with an aura of knowledge and an aura of um, 
authority, which is a useful construct, but, but it is a construct. And so to have that radically unveiled and to be learning together with the patients about, well, you know, how are we going to figure out getting you from swallowing ice chips to swallowing pudding? Um, or how are we going to get you to feel um, safe enough to feel um, enough reduction in the trauma and anxiety and depression that you're facing because you've been alone apart from your family for 90 days and haven't been able to get out of the bed? How are we going to overcome that together so that you can make the next step towards maybe by the end of this week, walking to the doorway of your room? Um, and those are not easy questions. And, and I didn't know the answer. And I, I don't think the patient did either. But but together we could um, we could do this essay. Um, we, we could try different drafts. We could revise different theses. We could um, kind of compose together um, a, a way that a way that we might move forward, a way that we might construct the story. My very first tiptoe towards medicine was a year or so after college when um, I started volunteering as a workshop leader at a harm reduction center for IV drug users on the Lower East Side. And uh, I came there with nothing but an undergraduate English degree in my pocket and uh, <laughs> a lot of big plans that I was going to kind of create a, a cadre of of writers and that um, by empowering people to um, narrate their life experience that I was going to change lives. <laughs> and um, it seems a bit, it, it's obviously presumptuous, <laughs> right, from where I sit now. But, um, but that was what I really thought. And um, I got there and uh, it was on the whole a really wonderful experience. But I think that there was a lot of um, useful antagonism that arose from time to time where people sincerely and, and correctly wanted to know, you know, wh what are you doing here? Uh, why are you here to help uh, make us seem more polished? Why are you here to, uh, to help us at all? Um, you know, what, what, what is your place? What, what has brought you among us? Um, which is a fair question, and um, it would it would take take volumes to attempt a just answer, I think. But at the same time, as people were asking those questions of me, I think I was starting to ask myself um, other questions, although potentially related. Um, you know, I, I would be helping someone to revise a poem or revise a dramatic monologue, and. Uh, and I'd be sitting across from someone who I, I can now say, you know, almost certainly had end-stage heart failure um, or someone who had quite obviously lost parts of their body to a, a rampaging infection or a limb ischemia or a, an end stage of diabetes or renal disease. And, and so there were parts of their body that were chronically wounded or absent um, or obviously in a great deal of pain from day to day. And uh, it felt um, profoundly uh, upsetting. I felt shaken, um, just feeling like, again, I, I was addressing this, this small and I thought incredibly valuable part of someone's life, which is um, how they can 
begin to express or continue to re-express who they are, how they want to be seen, how they want to declare their existence in the world through language. Um, but at the same time, like, God damn it, it would be so useful if I knew how to treat a diabetic foot, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, it, it really pained me that I could be helpful in this one way, but, but that my toolbox had, you know, kind of one, one thing in it, sort of one random Phillips head screwdriver and none of the other things. Um, and so uh, that was part of what made me interested in taking pre-medical classes. And I thought, you know, I'll just kind of put a second toe in the water and see if I can handle this. And if I can, then maybe I can um, get what I need out of medicine and then come back to this place, um, if not literally, then and come back to being kind of part of a community, standing with, standing beside um, people who might need this particular thing from me. And I really did conceptualize it that way. I felt like, you know, being at a party or, or in someone's apartment and someone realizes that it would be helpful to have a lemon or a lime and you kind of run across the street to like grab your piece of fruit and then the plan is to come back. Um, and that's that's how I felt about medicine at the time, um, that I was kind of running across the street to grab something and then I'd be right back. Um, and then at various points during my training, when um, I felt a tremendous pressure to um, to have my identity reformed by the process of medical training, which is, I, th I think the whole goal is to turn you into a doctor, mind, body, and soul. Um, and, you know, the all the things you memorize are, are really just in service to that larger project of turning you into a different kind of human. And I could feel that. Um, and I felt um, often really angry um, as though someone had sort of locked me in that supermarket. You know, I'm, I just want this thing and then I'm going to and then I'm going to leave or, or it's not going to be who I am. Um, it's it's just a, a, a little, you know, a few little pointers that I need to get. Um, in order to go back to being the person I was um, with this new helpful little item in hand. Um, and of course, it's not oh my like God, that. The idea <laughs> of like a medical degree and residency and the whole thing being like a real quick thing. I just need, hang on. I just need to like real quick, go, <laughs> go become a doctor. It's like, it's like the <laughs> longest thing you can train to do pro almost professionally. Yeah, no, that's true. But I think it is unique among the modern professions or career paths in that you are really asked in some explicit and then a thousand implicit ways to truly change who you are. Um, I think that that's a lot of the culture of medicine is that you will come out literally a different human being than the one you were when you started as, which I think is a little different than like learning to be, I, I imagine than like learning to be an electrician or something. Although maybe, maybe, there's also a great pressure to change your identity there. I'm not sure. What do you What do you mean when you say that you're expected to come out sort of down to the marrow, a different human being than you were when you walked into the door? Um, I think that throughout all of human history, um, doctors or people in the medical profession have felt um, a tremendous pressure to answer through their actions and through their habits of being um, why they deserve to wield so much power over the body of others. And I think that's basically been true since Hippocrates or probably earlier. Um, but I think that that um, 
question of, you know, what is the sort of special moral dispensation um, of doctors, of people in the healthcare professions, uh, keeps amplifying and keeps finding kind of new reasons to pop up in in contemporary culture. You know, I, I think, you know, one awful reason is just that as healthcare as an industry gets more sinister, um, more outright evil in some ways, that there is an equal and opposite pressure on um, the people who, who are actually providing care as individual humans to try to counteract that um, in the public mind and, and in their own ability to kind of inhabit that space um, and do that work to be even more so um, figures of, of moral propriety, figures of respectability, um, figures of an almost pastoral quasi-religious quasi significance, um, which is hugely problematic um, and, and probably the wrong direction. But I, I understand that we all feel that that counterweight and that it's impressed upon us by our mentors and by our teachers that, um, you know, even as uh, we are sometimes the unwitting or complicit agents of a deeply rapacious and unjust system, that it is all the more incumbent upon us to be um, these these paragons of excellence, um, which which is great, but I think that um, where it gets messy is that uh, then there's a pressure on doctors who speak in the first person um, or write in the first person uh, to be telling these stories of um, that that are triumphal um, or that are um, examples of having it figured out or examples of excellence um, that a lot of doctor writing um, is kind of relentlessly wholesome. Um, <laughs> that there's this um, story arc of epiphany where, you know, there was just one, one thing I didn't quite know or understand as profoundly as I should have. And then a magical wise patient taught it to me. And then when I came out the other side, then I knew. And now I have what I need to be a very, very good person and a very, very good doctor, um, which, which obviously happens. You know, I, I'm learning all kinds of uh, basics from my patients on how to be a good human, which I would not have known otherwise. But it's certainly not the only dynamic or the only story arc that happens in the hospital um, or in medical practice. And sometimes there there isn't an arc. And I, I think that one of the great gaps in the literature of doctors talking about themselves is to, uh, is sitting with the, the non-arc, the, the unstructured jumble, um, where, you know, writing about, uh, I was wading through the mud and then this thing happened and now I'm still wading through the mud. Um, cause that's <laughs> much closer to the reality in my view, um, is that we begin in, error and ignorance and partiality. And we um, most likely end or at any given arbitrary stopping point are still in states of error and ignorance and partiality. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> that is so true. As you're talking, I'm realizing how many, how much m medical writing, what you would call maybe medical writing for the lay person falls into either the rubric of the doctor as Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. and it's, and there's like a mystery that needs to be solved. And then the mystery is solved and, and the doctor is triumphant in that moment, or the doctor is a kind of moral 
every every man, every person who is converted or renewed, or as you are saying, there's this arc of epiphany where it, they were ne- they were not the like triumphal, brilliant sleuth all the all the way along. They kind of stumbled sideways into a moral realization, but there is still this feeling of discovery and revolution at the end, or um, revelation at the end. Um, and that's so unfair to doctors, it's occurring to me, and also a little bit unfair to narrative. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it is interesting. I mean, you said the word conversion. I think that's so true that they, um, they do belong to that narrative tradition of um, finding, finding the truth with a capital, capital T. Um, and, that that has not been my experience. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, when I started to write more in earnest as I continued, continued with my medical training, um, I pushed back against that hard. Um, and I had never gone through uh, in adolescence, I think, what people think of as uh, the sort of combative stage of adolescence. You know, I had always been um, the oldest child uh, ever eager to please, ever eager to conform and succeed. And so then I think right, like the I, kind of person who's like, I'll just go to medical <laughs> school real quick. Be right back. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't nobody worry. Like, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm just going to like get this little thing. Just don't mind me. Here I come. Um, and, and so then I think I went through my true adolescence kind of hard in medical school. And, um, I remember both on the night before uh, starting medical school and then again on the night before starting residency, just having this um, completely duplicative experience. And it didn't strike me until later that it had been it had been the same experience both times, which is that I was just weeping um, to my partner because I, I truly felt as though I had signed up for a lobotomy somehow and then had like lost the consent form and couldn't tear it up. And there was no way to alter the schedule, you know, that I was going this next day to do something that would actively, um, uh, resect from my brain, a part of it that I needed and wanted to keep, you know, that, that it was going to kind of sand me down and, and get rid of my messy edges. And I was so fearful of that. Um, and then of course I woke up the next day and and went to school and it was okay. (laughs) Um, but, I did continue to feel like um, medical, the medical identity was never really going to capture everything that I wanted to be. And I was really afraid of forgetting that and, and losing track of these other parts of myself. Um, so I wrote, you know, a lot of stories about people in medical training or in the medical profession um, behaving really badly. I was so kind of incensed by what I called the relentless wholesomeness of uh, the medical profession's description of itself that I really wanted to tack hard in the other direction and just wanted to write about doctors being bad, you know, being bad people and, you know, lying and cheating and sleeping with the people that they weren't supposed to and um, being careless in the treatment of their patients. Um, And all of those things, you know, happen in the world. But I think I... uh, those narratives were obviously like an overcorrection in hindsight where I I just wanted to show people, show myself really on the page that there were many different ways of existing in this space and there were bad ways. And we had to, I felt like I had to look at those in the face and, um, not, 
subscribe to a sort of Pollyannish creed of, of what this profession, what this life was going to be. Um, and in poetry too, you know, I, I wanted poems that could shock, that could be um, too much, you know, too snarky, too sexy, too jokey, too uh, impenetrable or obscure. Um, and so, you know, people are uh, always surprised when I say this, but, but you know, those years of medical school were the most prolific I've ever been as a writer, <laughs> which is bizarre, uh, but in some ways makes so much sense because I just had to try out all these other things, uh, other ways of being, other ways of describing myself, other ways of describing the world that I felt like I was being told in class every day uh, weren't okay. That they didn't really have space in in the discourse of the medical profession. Do you feel like you were able to synthesize those conflicting elements in yourself and then kind of come out, shoot out the other side of your medical training, feeling like both the person who could write a poem that was too sexy and a doctor with all of the moral baggage, it sounds like, that that implies? Or did those continue to war in your consciousness? How did that, or did you get sanded down? Like, did you feel like there was a moment where you then got turned into a doctor? <laughs> Whatever that meant to you. Um, I think there are moments now when I can be a doctor with a straight face and that is probably a good and useful thing for my patients. Um, but no, I, th I think I do still feel as a person who writes and creates as someone who is in conflict, but I think I've come to hope that that is the necessary state of affairs um, that I, I need to react against uh, these two poles of my life um, in order to keep venturing forward in this sort of dialectic between um, the elegance of the medical profession and the chaos of my own creative mind. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I can't see that stopping. And at this point, it seems to be the motor that keeps things going. That's really interesting because it strikes me that a lot of the writing you've been doing recently and it's not lost on me that you also seem to be having an extremely prolific 2020 as a writer. You seem to be publishing <laughs> kind of a lot. Um, I don't know if right now it's feeling like med school in terms of your workload, but um, your writing seems to be coming out at like quite a, quite a <laughs> pace. Um, and it strikes me that a lot of what you're doing right now is trying to elegantly articulate what doctors are trying to do right now, what, um, what it is like to be a doctor in 2020, treating COVID patients during the surge. Um, and I'm wondering how you think at this, this year, this month, this time, about balancing that elegance and messiness in your writing as you write about doctoring. Yeah, I think for me, the most valuable parts of my training and development as a doctor um, have been the moments when I've been taught that you know, yes, here's this grab bag of facts, but on the other hand, here are some potential styles of thinking. Here are some potential models for what solving a problem might look like. And you can take them, you can leave them, you can edit them, but but here they are as potential walks that, that you can take. And, um, and those are the parts that stick, not just for me, but I, I think for all the people in the profession. 
And so I think for me with some of my COVID-related writing, that's the thing that I've wanted to convey about what doctors do. You know, that yes, we've memorized a bunch of stuff, but really we're people who are trained in um, these various choreographies of how one might think and these different motions that the mind can take as it explores the territory towards a solution. Um, and I think that that's the most exciting part about the profession, but it's, it's not really what people necessarily envision or think they're looking for in a doctor. Um, I think people want the doctor to know what to do, um, and, and know the answer. Um, and that's obviously the goal, but I, I think, you know, when I'm writing about the ethical choices that doctors swim in daily during COVID, um, or the ways in which we wrestle with the death and suffering of our patients, um, I'm trying to express that we don't know, or that knowing is a much more dynamic and evolving process than maybe people have been led to believe by some of the um, truisms or some of the less helpful formulations of, of what it means to be a bearer of knowledge in that way. Yeah, that resonates very intensely with an experience I had earlier this year of someone I loved being in the ICU for several weeks with, as you mentioned in a conversation we had last week, like so many things going wrong, Mm multi-system craziness. And I was struck by the way that what the doctors were doing in that context was, and all of them like brilliant, expert, kind people working together in conversation with the everything that they had at their disposal and yet there was no nobody had a clear idea of what exactly the right thing to do was because they were all circling a body that continued to produce mysteries and so these new things would happen and everyone would kind of step back and be in conversation with each other given all the things that they had memorized, to, to use your phrase, all the things that they had sort of like the, the catalogs of knowledge in their brain, and then um, deploying these different styles of problem solving together that was, to me as just a bystander, incredibly awe-inspiring because it's it's a remarkable thing to watch and also deeply terrifying to realize that all these brilliant people who know more than I'll ever know about the body are can also still be completely mystified um, by some by what's happening. That there's a lot of trial and error. That there's a lot of guesswork. That it has a lot to do with styles of observation, reasoning, and problem solving, and much less to do with clear scripts of what what's going to happen or what's supposed to happen. And I think that that's something people don't know about medicine, or if they know it, they know it abstractly. Certainly that was my experience. Um, And I was struck in that context by how much language and rhetorical style, as it manifests in thought patterns, as it manifests in conversation, um, is hugely central to that kind of clinical care. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, realizing that attention itself has real ethical valences, um, you know, that there's an 
infinite number of data points that are coming at us from every bedside, from every patient. And, and we make choices about which ones we think fit the picture and tell us a story that we can make sense of. Um, but we always do so at our peril. Um, and sometimes in service to the, the physiological realities of a patient, for example, um, our attention drifts from the, the human or psychological or narrative realities of a patient. Um, and that, that um, that's really kind of a sin of omission in <laughs> catechism language that I grew up with. Um, and that, that puts us in a tough spot. Um, and that's where I think writing is of service as well um, in reopening that space later, even if retroactively, maybe it's not of the same direct service to that patient who was in the bed, but at least as a kind of um, penance or reflection um, to recognize that there were all these other things that one could have paid attention to, um, which is heartbreaking, but but how, how else can you hope to do better next time? So, uh, like a lot of physicians who treated patients during the COVID epidemic, particularly here in New York, where we had a tremendous surge of cases, um, I wore a lot of different hats and performed a lot of different roles during the pandemic. Um, I worked in the general wards, which were um, essentially uh, COVID wards, um, because most of our other patients uh, disappeared for various reasons. Um, I did some work with the intensivists, the intensive care doctors. Um, I worked in the hospice and palliative care unit of our hospital and, in fact, helped to create it. And um, and then finally, as the curve started to peak, um, I helped formulate a COVID recovery unit, which was for patients who were rehabilitating after sometimes weeks or months on a ventilator in the ICU with covid and patients would come to us for rehabilitation and really be starting from scratch in teaching themselves how to perform kind of the basic functions of humanity, how to think clearly, how to think straight, how to eat, how to swallow their own saliva, um, how to move their arms and legs, then how to sit up, then how to walk. And um, my job was not necessarily to... Um, be their teacher, but to help take care of them while they learned how to do these things for themselves and, and learned with the help of our um, speech pathologists and physical therapists and occupational therapists. And um, in some ways, it was a really um, graced and beautiful space because um, I think traditional medicine can often be very hierarchical, where the doctor is kind of seen as the captain of the ship. And then uh, there are various people who execute the will of the doctor. Um, and then there is the patient who is kind of the recipient of all those those acts that are done to the patient. Um, and this felt like a radical experiment in democracy where uh, I was not necessarily the leader. Um, really, the patient was, or all of us were together. Um, but still, some shadow aspect of that old hierarchical sense of medicine um, it's probably impressed upon me where in my head I, I hear my internal monologue through the day of what I think is happening to the patient, what I think we ought to do next, what, what I think the next order or directive should be. 
Um, and sometimes that inner monologue gets so, uh, so busy, so, so jammed with my own um, opinions and my own kind of internal task list that I lose sight of the fact that, that patients are at the same time um, authors of their own lives and authors of their own story. And I think when this really uh, hit home for me, when I was kind of recalled to this, this truth of the matter, which, which I had lost sight of, was when we were finally bidding farewell to a patient who had been in the hospital since March, uh, much of that time on a ventilator, and in early July was finally, finally able to go home. He still had a lot of setbacks and disabilities, but he could now walk short distances. He could now perform some simple tasks for himself, and it would be okay for his wife and his children and himself to band together to complete his care and his recovery at home. Um, and this patient was bilingual. Um, he spoke uh, English and Spanish. Spanish was his native language. Um, and I speak horrible Spanish, very, very rudimentary, childish Spanish. So we conversed in English, which was very kind of him. Um, and uh, when he left the hospital, he left to a great deal of fanfare. He was really our star patient. We were so proud of him. Um, we were thrilled. And I missed him because I felt we had developed um, a rapport that I really enjoyed outside of the um, clinical roles that we sat in. Um, I just enjoyed speaking with him and he was very, um, just a, a very uh, thoughtful and composed and, and poised person. And he always thought before he spoke and uh, you could kind of see him really deeply cogitating. And then he would give um, often these um, just, just really striking answers. And, and it was always such a pleasure to have that conversation first thing in the day. And um, the next day, someone sent around a, uh, a link on email to all the staff who had worked in the unit saying, uh, you know, this gentleman went home and this is what happened next. And so I clicked on it and it was, um, it was a, a, an excerpt from a TV program on um, um, Univision, on Univision, um, which showed... Uh, uh, like the homecoming and, and unbeknownst to me and maybe unbeknownst to him, um, this TV crew had uh, arranged to uh, greet him and kind of hear the story of his homecoming um, when he got home to his apartment in the outer boroughs. And um, he was greeted with a surprise mariachi band and the whole neighborhood was dancing. Everyone was just so thrilled that he was back um, and then the, you know, microphone was thrust in his face and, and a reporter asked him, you know, tell us, tell us your story. How, how was this? And, um, and out of his mouth came this just, just torrent of language. Um, and um, I don't mean to exoticize the fact that it was Spanish or that it wasn't my native language, um, because it's not, that's not really the point I want to make. Um, but, but sometimes it is helpful when one isn't fluent in another language, because then you can um, you can hear that language just as a as a physical instantiation of of um, tone and feeling um, and um, just everything that's kind of carried across the sound wave itself, and to see this um, just uh, tremendous cascade of of 
vitality and language and expression and uh, fluency from this gentleman um, kind of left me uh, dumbfounded because uh, he was obviously a different person in his native language. We all are. Um, but, but to hear him just speak in uh, paragraphs and, and to have obviously like a, a, a novel of experience in him that, that hadn't been, it hadn't been my place to elicit it from him. It hadn't been the space for him to need or want to tell that story, but it was there. It was, it was obviously just kind of this potential energy, which was then turned into something active and kinetic um, as soon as he was outside of the hospital, outside of kind of my domain, outside of the clinical space, um, which is this tremendous reminder that that is um, surely always the case. And sometimes there will be a, a camera post-hospital that kind of reveals that to me, um, that that tells me that I'm seeing this, uh, not even the tip of the iceberg, but just kind of a, a very random uh, segment of, of someone's reality. And that obviously the, the vastness and complexity of, of the, the truer or fuller story that someone has is, um, just beyond my comprehension and always will be. And so to feel kind of, um, appropriately humbled and, and mystified and, uh, excited to, to see, to glimpse in that, in that moment um, of how small I was and how small my own um, minute comprehension, partial comprehension of someone else's narrative um, was just a joyful moment of being put in my place. Often, I feel that I have no just choice but to speak for others, um, which is always a queasy position. But um, when we're speaking of the dead, for example, of people who've died on my watch, or of people who who can no longer use their cognitive faculties or their or their speech or their vocal faculties, then. I have a I have a moral choice. I have an aesthetic choice, uh, you know, less importantly, but I have I have a moral or an ethical choice. Um, I can tell the story of that person as best I can, um, or there could be no story because you know that person cannot tell it, um, and thus far it doesn't seem like anyone else is coming along. So there, so there could be my um, subjective story in which I will impose. Um, my biases, um, the authority that I'm trying desperately to shed but still clings to me, um, and all these other infelicities of who I am, you know, that, that's one option. Or it could not exist. And um, for someone with logorrhea like me, it, it's hard to countenance <laughs> the latter, the non-existence. Um, although sometimes I do have to choose that because there doesn't really seem to be... Um, an honorable way in the sense of, of doing honor to that person, um, that I can accomplish. So sometimes it, it just has to pass into silence. Um, but other times, you know, I sort of have to shrug and, and then blunder my way into, into speaking for, um, 
this person who no longer can. And so I think in part because I've been accustomed to making that choice as a writer, um, it can help me then when I'm at the bedside to um, face the patient and know that I don't really have the words to get us through the day today. Um, and maybe you don't either, but I'm going to give you, you know, my, uh, what is it? Is it Annie Diller just says shitty rough drafts? Um, I think first so. Drafts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you my shitty first draft of how the day might be today. And then, and then let's hear yours. And, and then, you know, we'll just, we'll just muddle along. Um, so becoming a little bit more comfortable with, um, just the, the infelicities, the, the mild brutalities, the, the ugliness of our shitty first drafts and, um, our, our attempts to tell a story that, that aren't quite ours and we won't quite get them right, but here we go. Um, I think that helps me when I try to write, um, and then, you know, conversely feeds back to the way that I operate at the bedside. For some reason, I find that to be a very comforting answer. And I don't know if I'm feeling <laughs> comforted as a writer or comforted as like somebody who might be a patient someday. I don't know. But that's not that idea of just kind of saying, well, we're going to start with the shitty rough draft of figuring out how to make ourselves understood in this moment. And we will proceed from there. Um, <laughs> makes me want to exhale. Right. I, th- I think as a reader, you know, particularly as a reader of poetry, I've always felt myself drawn to elegy. It's sort of my favorite subgenre of poetry, but I feel so suspicious of myself for feeling that way because it's the one genre of, uh, of writing, of, of speech acts in which you're addressing a you who cannot talk back. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a fraught space. It's a fraught form. Um, and maybe that's part of why I, I love that in a readerly way, um, that you're watching someone trespass a bit um and and maybe do it wrong maybe be bad maybe um uh speak out of turn um and you kind of watch a person dance with uh dance with conscience like conscience is kind of the other you in analogy the one you the the basic you is the person that they're addressing who has passed but then there's this you of well how far ought one to go um you know, where can I tiptoe before it feels like I am um, exposing what should not be exposed? I am doing what I should have asked permission for, and now I can't. Right. There's a, a lack of accountability in some way outside of the writer's own conscience when you're right. writing to someone this who can't write form. Back. Yeah, definitely. As a te- I don't know if anyone else has ever done this, but it's like as a teenager, I used to write love Lauren letters and emails or angry and then never send them. Right. It's all, it's the freedom of writing with no, uh, just to get it out, you know, um, it's like the freedom of writing without any audience, except of course, mine don't get published. And those, those letters, thank God have been burned and deleted, but, uh, the elegy form exists in the world. Right. There is this sort of vacuum effect that almost draws the breath out of your lungs to fill this, this void that is, um, sucking your speech out, out of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that. I think that's so interesting. It, It resonates with what you were saying about how, especially at the beginning of you 
becoming a doctor, you wanted to really, really not lose messiness and bigness. Um, you didn't want like doctoring mm-hmm. to be constraining. Does it feel constraining on your writing? Um, I think it, it will, I think when I finally finish this book manuscript and then I have to sit with, um, or wrestle with what I'm willing to share with the world. I think I'm still in this lovely fantasy period of composition where, um, no one else necessarily will read this. And so I should just say whatever I want. (laughs) Um, but I, I do wonder how I will hold up when, um, when eventually I have to think about a manuscript as something that eventually becomes a public document as a book, and then think about, um, to what extent do I want to, um, hew to the, um, the general professional tack, which is that, um, as a doctor, you have to display yourself neatly, you know, in this sort of, uh, writing equivalent of like business attire, essentially. Um, and, and to what extent, um, can it be, a a self-portrait with, with a sort of dangerous veracity? Um, so right now I'm, I'm writing a memoir of medical training, um, that's infused with different, um, works of art and literature and philosophy that kind of kept me going as, as little islands in which to, kind of rest for a few days before, you know, jumping back into the sea. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be working on this book. Um, but I, I can see the pressure of self-censorship that I might feel at the end. Um, because it's difficult to admit in a, in a truly public forum, like in a final publication, just how much I didn't know and how many times I really, really messed up. I think that's true of anyone who writes with an eye that they're going to claim as actually them. Mm-hmm. Though I imagine, <laughs> though I imagine that that having another profession where you're expected to be extremely authoritative and and neat um, will make that even harder. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. I hope you write it messy. Thank you. <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>